Well, I was uh, about five years old when one day I was playing out in our front yard and suddenly I realized that something was missing from my hand and I immediately began, proceeded to freak out. See, my grandfather, who I adored, had a hobby of polishing rocks and gemstones and he would create jewelry. And he actually created a ring for me that had like a tiger's eye ring, uh, stone in it, which was just cool as a boy. I'm wearing a tiger's eye ring. And I wore it all the time. It was very precious to me, but it was missing from my finger. I knew I had it on when I started playing, so I figured out I had lost it somewhere along our front sidewalk. So uh, in, in being a thoughtful kid, I hopped on my big wheel, and I began riding back and forth because it had me low to the ground, and I could search along the concrete for this ring. And while doing so, I began cursing on a loop. Okay, like, like specifically, let's just say that I learned later on that God's last name doesn't begin with D. Uh, but there was, uh, there I was, this five-year-old, I'm riding my big wheel up and down uh, this sidewalk, just cussing like a trucker, and then my dad uh, calls me from the house. It was a beautiful day, the windows were open, my dad had heard, overheard this verbal barrage, and so he called me and he sat me on his lap and he was like, Chad, no, I know that you're frustrated, but, but we don't talk like that. And, and I looked at him and I said, we don't? But dad, you do. <laughs> yes, son, but I'm, I'm an adult, and so I should probably stop saying that as well. So let's just t- not talk like that anymore. It's like, okay, dad. And I'm, I'm just curious, is anyone here, did you have to have a conversation like that with your parents at all? They heard a word or words coming out of your mouth, you're, you're just not going to admit it. Uh, any of you parents ever have to have a conversation with one of your kids like that? Uh, it's, it's just at some point, uh, maybe recently. And of course they didn't hear it from you, right? Like they probably heard it at their Christian school. But as a kid, I, I kind of remember wondering at one point, like what makes a cuss word a cuss word? Um... And who decided what a curse word was, and who gave them the authority to decide that? And just to kind of tease this out for our deeper purposes this morning, here's the, our question. What makes a sin a sin? And, and, and we, all know, uh, we all know that sin is associated with religion, and it's like God has house rules. And if you break one of God's house rules, we've told, we're told that we've sinned or that we are sinners. And of course, sins vary by religion. They even vary within the Christian tradition. And, and something I think we all intuitively know is that good parents make the family or the house rules clear. Good governments make the rules or the laws clear. So the question we're going to wrestle with today is, what about Jesus? Like, did Jesus ever clarify what's a sin and what's not? And this is an especially important question if you're attempting to follow Jesus or if you're considering becoming a Jesus follower, because if Jesus has house rules, if God has house rules, we ought to know what those are. And if Jesus has house rules and he's a good leader, then he would explain what they are and how he came up with those rules, right? And so today we're in part three of this series where we have been, uh, this, this, we're sharing with multiple other churches uh, in various contexts. It's the fundamental list, and we're recovering the essentials of our faith. And in this series, we're attempting to answer the question, what must, what must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And to clarify, we're not covering like all the things like that, that as a Christian, you know, we believe or maybe should believe, but like at the core, not answering this question and not what must a person do, because we talk about the doing part all of the time, because Jesus 
was very clear that doing is what actually makes a difference in your life, in the lives of others, and in culture and world. But at, at, at the same time, it's important to know what, what must a person actually believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So we're attempting to boil it down to the irreducible minimum. What is essential and what's not? And this is a very important question for a lot of reasons, one of which is that, as you know, uh, within the Christian faith, there's just so many different expressions and denominations. In fact, there was a recent compilation by Wesley University that lists 33,089 Christian denominations worldwide. This includes the massive Roman Catholic Church with billions of it, a billion adherents, 25 principal forms of Eastern Orthodoxy, numerous varieties of Protestantism, tiny storefront churches with fewer than 100 members. Uh, this includes churches whose govern, governance is democratic, conciliar, authoritarian, churches whose worship is ceremonial or ecstatic or mostly silent, uh, churches whose politics are conservative, liberal, radical, quietist, churches are founded and run by women, churches who still make males and females sit on opposite sides of the church, and churches whose clergy are celibate, monogamous, or polygamous. And this, unfortunately, all these different faith traditions somehow represent Christianity, and they all come with their own terms and conditions. We don't even use the same translation of the Bible. We definitely don't use the same interpretation of the Bible. So the question is, how do we know? Like, how do we know what's fundamental, what's essential? Because the only thing we 33,089 Christian denominations worldwide have in common is that we're all sure we're right, and everyone else is only half right or partially right or misinformed or uninformed. And, and part of what this has made, has made this so complicated is beginning in the second century, in every generation, new and novel ideas got woven into different expressions of the Christian faith. Ideas have been woven and sometimes in that are sometimes toxic, sometimes harmful. I mean, you go back to certain periods of church history, and it is unbelievable what was justified or what was elevated to the status of doctrine or dogma or theology. And that if you don't believe this, you don't embrace this, you don't go along with this, you don't practice this, then you aren't a true Christ follower. You're not a real Christian. You don't belong. But here's the challenge. And maybe this is your story, because for sure it's a story of someone you love. When non-essentials character define a church brand, thoughtful and honest people often feel like they have no choice but to step away, to step away from their church or their denomination or the particular group they're connected to or the network they've always been a part of, to step away and just kind of clear their heads. And in some cases, they feel like they need to deconstruct. It's a term that we're hearing more and more of. To basically just try to sort out what is essential and what is not. Like, I don't want to leave the Christian faith, but I'm having a hard time reconciling what they're teaching and practicing and how they insist church must be done and how they treat people. Maybe it's as if the tone and the approach of either, you know, the, the leadership or the, of the Christian faith, it begins to feel very unchristlike. And for some, what they're dealing with is that they feel like the leaders or their church or their denomination, it's, it's like they seem to know the Bible, but do they know Jesus? Which is why we're talking about it. It's so important because when the cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christian, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone because it's no longer good news of great joy for all people. It just becomes good news of great joy for some people. 
And so far we've discovered two fundamentals. The first one is that Jesus is God's Son and our King. Because this is what Jesus claimed of himself, and which means that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to acknowledge who he claimed to be. And he punctuated that claim by predicting and pulling off his own death and resurrection with hundreds and hundreds of witnesses willing to die for that fact, that they saw him alive. Then as God's final king, these build on one another. Fundamental too is Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. That the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not Bible stories. That the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they document history. What Jesus lived out, what he taught, what he taught that his Father, our Heavenly Father, what God is like. That Jesus came to somehow close the gap between human beings and God who's out there somewhere. Jesus came to make it personal and to bring it up close so that we could understand what God is like. And today we're going to talk about number three, which is in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus as our final king, as the singular individual in history who came to reveal God to us, we have to acknowledge and embrace Jesus's characterization of sin or Jesus's definition of sin, of what made a sin a sin to Jesus, our King, the Son of God, who came to reveal what God is like. Jesus, like a good parent, like a good government, made it clear. But unfortunately, church hasn't made it clear. And I take part of the blame because I'm part of that. I'm part of the church. But the church often hasn't made it as clear as Jesus did because about every expression of Christianity has a habit of equalizing rather than prioritizing content in the Bible. And we're going to discover today Jesus did not do this when it came to his own scriptures. And this is going to be liberating and helpful for some of you that Jesus actually prioritized some things in his own scripture over others. In fact, Matthew, he records an incident where Jesus did exactly that. So a lawyer, an expert of the law, he comes to Jesus with a question about the law, and if you grew up uh, or if you've been around here for a while, you're familiar with this piece of narrative. We just touched on it just two weeks ago. The question and Jesus's response are so loaded with implications, but our tendency is that we read this piece of narrative and we just jump to the answer that Jesus gave. And we misunderstand or we skip over the implications of the fact that Jesus was even willing to answer the question. So a Pharisee comes to Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? 613 Moses commands, uh, commandments, including the top 10, he asks, and the Greek term here means, which is the mega? Which is the mega commandment of the one, 613? Which one is most essential, most fundamental? And this is the part that I don't want you to miss. Jesus didn't question the question. Jesus doesn't say, well, what, what do you mean? They are all equally inspired, therefore they are all equally important. Instead, he affirms the relevance and the importance of the question, and we are about to learn what Jesus values most which means it's what God values most. And it begins to lead us to Jesus' definition of what makes sin, sin, 
or a sin sin. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy where uh, after the Hebrew nation had wandered through the wilderness for many, many years, uh, Moses is trying to remind the people of what's most important. It's just another wording of the first of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. I'm your God. Don't drift to these pagan gods because if you do, there'll be, there'll be trouble. It's, it's just you need to, this most important commandment is that you need to lean into and love God so much that you live your life in order to please God, because what pleases God ultimately is what is best for us. And so he says to him that you need to live this way, love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then Jesus says this, he says, this is the first, and in the Greek term here, this little term, first in sequence. So this is the first and the greatest. This is the mega commandment. And before the Pharisee can respond, Jesus smiles and says, and. And I'm thinking, and? Like, no. He asked for one, you gave him one. There's one. Jesus is about to reveal what's most important to him and to your heavenly Father and to, among other things, define what makes sin, sin. And the second is like it, in sequence, not importance. In fact, the second commandment is evidence of how well a person is keeping the first. If you're not keeping the second, you're not keeping the first. Because let's be honest, love the, go- love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Like, like, who knows? Like, how do you monitor that? How do you measure that? And the second is like it. Here's how. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this next statement we need to not miss on how clarifying and prioritizing it is. For the Jewish audience that was sitting there, this would have been huge. Everything in what we would consider the Old Testament, they referred to it as the law and the prophets. Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, these are the hinge. These are the epicenter. This is what connects them all. These two define all the rest. Of the 600 other plus, you just come back to these two. Love God and love your neighbor. It all hangs on these two. Love for God is demonstrated and authenticated by your love for others. Your practical, demonstrated, active, everyday love for others is what demonstrates and authenticates your allegiance to and your love for God, not rule-keeping. The horizontal authenticates the vertical. Horizontal, how I'm treating you, authenticates the vertical of how I'm following God, how I treat my neighbor and how I treat my enemies. The proactive compassion that I show to people who are easy to love and those who are difficult to love. My everyday practical responses, the way that I'm living living my life toward others authenticates whether or not I am truly following Jesus and if I truly love God with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind. And I'm telling you, if you take this idea, as you begin with Matthew or begin with John, it doesn't matter, but if you take this idea and use this as the filter as you read through the Gospels, suddenly so much of Jesus' teachings become so clear. Case in point, in the book of Mark, and Mark got 
that we believe Mark got most of his information from Peter. So this is kind of Peter through Mark. Mark records another narrative where Jesus illustrates and teaches this in another kind, a different kind of way. And he doubles down on this whole idea. Mark tells us about a day when uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling at this particular point. They're kind of traveling through some, uh, walking through some grain fields. So they're sort of trespassing through somebody's grain fields. Uh, it's the Sabbath. Uh, and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, which is a great law. Like, how do you not love a God who says, I'm going to give you a rule, take a break every week. Don't just rest, don't work, don't do any of that. And there's implications to why part of the reason we're going a little crazy uh, in our current culture. But as Jesus and his disciples are walking through these stalks, I mean, there's grain that's budding at the top, and they're, they're ripe, and they're picking them off, and they're eating them as they move through this grain field, which was legal for them to do. But it's kind of considered like a minor harvest, but it's okay for people to do this. But the Pharisees, who are just like, they're just like everywhere, like constantly shadowing Jesus, looking for something to catch him in. And they're thinking, look, I'm hungry too, but we have rules and there's rules and we follow the rules. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? I mean, you can't harvest grain on the Sabbath. That's work, okay? That's prohibited. Because of oral tradition, not anything written, picking heads of grain off a stalk was considered harvesting or considered work. And so in his characteristic way, Jesus ignores the absurdity of their question or this application of the law to make a broader point. And this is one of those statements that when we read it in the New Testament, it's just so loaded with meaning. meaning. But in our culture, we, we just miss it. We read right by it. And he's about to make a statement about the entire law that goes back to what he said to the lawyer that day. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, made for human beings, not man or human beings for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In, in, in other words, teachers of the law, you've, you've got it completely backwards. God did not create people so that there would be someone to keep his laws. So in the beginning, God wasn't up in heaven going, I've got all these amazing rules and commands, but I don't have anybody to follow them. I need to make humans so somebody can follow all these amazing rules and commands and keep my laws. It's kind of like parents don't have children because they have a bunch of rules for kids. You know, I just got all these great rules for kids, but we don't have any kids. We got to have some kids so we can have them to keep these rules. And as ridiculous as it sounds, it's like this is... This is the approach, unfortunately, for so many Christians to their approach to God. In fact, throughout the centuries, the gravitational pull of almost every religious system, let alone Christian traditions and the Christian faith, is that God made humans to keep his rules. Jesus' implication is the people are the priority, not the rules not the laws. And, and this is where he, could just, he would just double and triple down over and over again throughout his ministry, that if someone applies the law of God in a way that it harms or leads to the neglect of people, they are applying it incorrectly. If someone applies laws that God gave in such a way that it neglects or it harms other people, they are not applying it correctly because laws and rules were created for the benefit of people all people. If they aren't benefiting other people, you have misunderstood or you are applying it incorrectly. In fact, you should read the Gospels for yourselves. This may be the only thing that angered Jesus. Experts in the law would justify their mistreatment of people by pointing to the fact that they were upholding the law of God. 
which led them to ask the silliest questions. I mean, you read some of the questions like, what were these guys thinking? Well, they were just playing out of this framework that God has laws and God loves his laws more than he loves people. So one day the teachers the law, and it can be so easy to be critical of them, but this is an example where we realize we are equally as guilty. So they come to Jesus one day, and they ask a question that, again, in our modern sensibilities, it just seems so offensive, but they were really trying to figure this out. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Like, Jesus, we're trying to figure out this divorce thing. And of course, it's men asking, right? It's like, she burnt my dinner. Okay, she complains too much. She showed up late. I'm just not attracted anymore. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? And there was a whole sect that actually believed and practiced this. It didn't matter how absurd the reason. If if a man found anything off-putting or undesirable about his wife personally, he could just simply give her a piece of paper, send her on his way, and hopefully upgrade. And that's how it worked. And she was powerless to do anything about it. And so they're asking, is it lawful to do this? And as offensive as that question is, it's the same question that you and I ask. It's the question that we ask when we're more concerned about a view than a you. When you're more concerned about how close to sin can I get without actually sinning? How much can I get away with and not make God mad? This is what you ask when you're more concerned with religion than you are people. In fact, there's a question that I've been asked more times than I can count. Uh, Pastor, does the Bible say blank is a sin? (laughs) Does the Bible say blank is a sin? Why do we ask this question? We ask this question about blank because we want to do blank, right? Like, I want to do blank, and, but I want to know, is God going to be mad at me if I do blank? If so, how mad will he be? I mean, I haven't read the whole Bible, Pastor, but I, I don't understand most of it anyways, but I know you've read the Bible. Does the Bible say anywhere that, that blank is a sin? And we ask this question again because either we want to do blank or we're trying to convince someone else to do blank to get something we want. The assumption being, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, God condones it. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus who came to reveal the heart, the soul, and the intent of God. According to Jesus, no, what's good for people is what's good and what's not is not. Jesus had no patience, none, for good people who weren't good to people. Woe to you, teachers of the law. He sounds like Gandalf. You shall not pass. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, which was required of the law, but even though you're keeping God's law, you have neglected the more important matters. What more important matters? Justice mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And notice, notice that the former are what? They're all self-centered. They're all purely between me and God. The latter is focused on our actions towards people, justice, mercy, faithfulness, where we have committed to be faithful, other humans, 
actions towards people. The, the phrase that you have neglected the more important matters of the law is so important because Jesus is saying the intent of God's law is more important than the laws themselves. Because, because the laws of God flow from the intent, the goal and the purposes of God, which is to see goodness and good things flow towards all people. Jesus says justice, mercy, faithfulness to those to whom you have pledged faithfulness. That is what matters. That is what matters to our Father in heaven, and that's what's supposed to matter to you and to me. But for huge segments of Christianity, for a long time, it's like, mm it's about the rules, okay? In fact, and this frustrates me so much, especially in our current culture, compassion, justice, and mercy have been reduced to a political position or leaning. It's like, no, those are for those on the left. Those are for a leftist agenda. No, being a good Christian is about fidelity, morality, truth-telling, being a good person, being a good citizen. And if I'm a good person and a good citizen, it doesn't matter how I treat other people because God and I are good to go. But when you take the time to set aside all the left-wing, right-wing, ideology, assumptions, attributions instead, say, no, I'm going to put faith in the fellowship of Jesus as my final king, as our final king, above, far above any earthly political affiliation. And when you decide to follow Jesus through the Gospels and not be so focused on this sin list of the epistles, you begin to understand the connection and your heart begins to change. And it doesn't mean you become like, okay, it's fine, who cares, you can just do whatever you desire. No, you, you become a better person, and then when you bump into legalism, you find it offensive. You have no capacity or tolerance for legalism or toxic Christianity or toxic faith because it's not of God, it's not of His Son. So for Jesus, what made a sin a sin? The most concise definition I've personally seen is this. Sin is the failure to be humans who fully and perfectly love God and others. Sin is the failure to be humans who fully and perfectly love God and others. So to just kind of build that on that, tease it out, break it down, according to Jesus, how do you know what's a sin? And you're going to feel like I've suddenly taken it to a sixth grade classroom because we've got some rhyming going on, but we need it as simple as possible, right? So, so number one, if it's not good for him, it's sin. That's it. Is it good for him? No. Well, then don't do it. It's a sin. But it's illegal. But is it good for him? No. But everybody else, yeah. But is it good for him? Is it the best thing for him? No. Well, then don't do that. Don't treat him that way. That's sin. Number two, if it's not good for her, defer. Same thing as the first one, but it rhymes, okay? In other words, men, if it's not good for her, no. But Chad, you know, she does or she doesn't, but culture, but everybody else, no. Well, what if she never finds out? It doesn't matter. Secrets always come out eventually and always harms one others. So if it's not good for her, no. Just no. Number three, if it's not good for you, no can do. <laughs> Why? Because God isn't just concerned about how you treat others. God is concerned about how you treat yourself. 
God is concerned about how you treat your body, your future, your character, your reputation, anything that has to do with you. Because God is for you. He loves you. So it has the potential to harm you, to hurt you, to master you, to set you up for pain, for suffering, for difficulty. It's, it's a sin. And number four, if it's not good for them, it should be condemned. If there's a person or a group in culture, society, or in the world that are being mistreated or because of injustice or unfairness or just some societal thing, Christians should speak out in objection to those things and do something about it. Why? Because this individual or this group are being sinned against. They're either being ignored or they're being actively mistreated by a person or another group or a people or a government or culture because, you know, just whatever it is, because what God values most is not his rules. What God values most are, are people. James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes. Someone's without clothes or daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good does it do? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action. It's dead. Behind the rules is God's love, compassion, and justice, and mercy, and kindness, and forgiveness. God is all about what we do that elevates the status and the well-being of others. And anything that harms or neglects you or other people, Jesus defines as sin. Do you know why Jesus characterized and defined sin this way? Because his heavenly Father characterized and defined sin this way. Because, and you know why your heavenly Father is against sin? Because he's for you and all of the yous around you. When Jesus showed up, it was the temple model. The message of the temple model is this. When you sin, you break God's law. So in the temple model, I go to the temple, and I follow the rules to make sure that God and I are good. That's the temple model. Jesus, the Jesus model was when you sin, you break yourself, and you break others. So to do anything that mentally, physically, relationally, spiritually hurts me or anyone else, it breaks the heart of God. So why would we be surprised that God is anti-sin when God knows what any of us who for sure are 25 years or older know from our own experience? Every sin comes with a built-in consequence. Over the holidays, I had two family members that I spent time with whom I love. One celebrated 300 days of sobriety, one celebrated 500 days. And their testimony is powerful. You know, leading up to this morning, I, I read an article, The Three M's of My Progression into Alcoholism was the title. The author wrote, all addictions start off as magical, then they become medicinal, and then you become miserable. It all starts off as magical, it's the best. And then it's medicinal, like I need it. And then I'm miserable. How do I get out of it? Can I get out of it? That's the progression of sin. It always starts off as magical, which is why we can be so indifferent and flippant when it comes to sin, but then you need it, and eventually you realize what you've lost because of it as a consequence, and it numbs our conscience, and it harms our relationships, it destroys our self-respect, and it destroys our self-control. 
I mean, how many of us at one point, back to my illustration earlier, we wanted to do blank, so we formulated arguments to support us doing blank. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not hurting anyone. It's my decision. It's my choice. But now we look back and we go, what was I thinking? How could I have been so naive? How could I have been so foolish? I wish I would have known then what I know now. It's why, for example, God is a very narrow path when it comes to our sexuality, our sexual expression. We may not like it, but God knows the truth about what He created, that sex is more than just physical. We might decide to argue that it's just physical, but it's far more than that because God designed it that way. So, of course, He's going to give us rules to guide and protect us in how we handle and express it because He's for us. Or when it comes to how we handle our honesty or our money or morality, of course God is anti-sin because God is for you and He's for me. And He wants to see you prosper and not experience harm. God is for you and He's for all the yous around you. And at the epicenter of how Jesus and your Heavenly Father define sin is how your behavior and mine negatively impacts ourselves or other people. So this is essential. It's fundamental that we view sin the way our Savior views sin. So here's our list so far. They build on one another. The first one, fundamental, is that God, Jesus is God's Son and our King. The second one is that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. And the third one is Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or others, whether it shows up on a sin list or appears in the Bible or not. So I'm, I'm going to ask a terrifying question, and then here in a minute I'm going to ask you to respond, which is going to be more terrifying. So we're going to have fun. But don't tune out. So here's the question. In one way or another, are you harming others or are harming you? Stop. Is there something in your life that the people who are depending on you, who love you, they found out about or they knew it, it would harm them or undermine their confidence in you or the fidelity of your relationship with them? Is there someone in your life that the way that you've been speaking to them or treating them, you know it's hurting them? Maybe you try to explain it away, well, that's just who I am or that's just my personality or my temperament or that's the family that I grew up in and my mom was this way or my dad was this way, so I can't help it. Or if they would just be more or if they would just be less, uh, you know, I could treat them better, but at the end of the day, you're hurting someone for whom Jesus died. Is there a behavior, a pattern in your life, secret or not, that's chip, chipping away at your self-esteem, your self-respect, Maybe you don't like who you see in the mirror so much. A behavior pattern that's hurting you or hurting others, hurting those you love. Maybe you're hurting or neglecting your body, your physical self, your mental self, your spiritual health. Is there a habit that's beginning to chip away at your self-control? At first it was, you know, I have this under control. I can stop anytime I want to, but you don't. And the truth is, you're beginning to lose control. Would you be willing to acknowledge that? Have you become so focused on you that you've been telling God no to something that you know He wants you to do for someone else or for a group of people to speak up or to take action, but you don't do it because it would be inconvenient or you're too busy 
that might cost you something? Would you be willing to accept whatever that is and accept Jesus' invitation to walk away from whatever sin it is for you because it's baked into the invitation to follow Jesus because he loves you. He's asking, would you be willing to turn from that and leave that behind or turn from your sin and follow me? Walk away, not because God's going to get you, but because sin will break you and it will eventually break the hearts of the people that you love the most. Do you love you or at least love them enough that you would be willing to walk away from your sin? This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to turn away from something and turn towards him. So here's how we're going to close today. And I do this on a rare occasion, but I think it would be irresponsible to not do it this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something embarrassing and humiliating. In, In just a minute, I'm going to ask you, anyone here, any of you, if you're watching in a living room with your family, it's going to be awkward, but... But I'm going to ask anyone that's willing today to acknowledge publicly you have a sin that you need to walk away from. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. You're like, there's a behavior. There's a habit. There's this thing or there's a relationship. There's something. There's something that I just know. It's just, I just know it's sin. And I just want to be done with it. I want to walk away from it and I want to walk towards Jesus. And maybe nobody's going to stand. That's not going to embarrass me. I just feel like I got to give you the opportunity. But if anybody stands, I want the rest of us clap, cheer for them. Jesus said, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So we're going to celebrate too. And then after a moment, I'm going to ask any one of us that's ever had to walk away from a sin to stand up as well. And I'm already standing, so I'm with you So if any of you listening today, if you're like, I get it, I'm done, I've got something I need to walk away from, whatever it is for you, would you stand? And for the rest of you, if you've had to walk away from a sin, please stand and join. Let me pray for us. Father, I am just so grateful for your compassion, your patience, your love, that like a good parent, you're just so patient with us. Father, I pray for everyone this morning that had the courage to stand, that, Father, you would provide through your spirit the strength, the encouragement, the courage to to follow through when they leave or when they log off. And, Father, I pray that you would draw people alongside them, people that may already be there, but, Father, that... Uh, They would have the courage to share it with those people so that they don't try to do this alone because guaranteed the enemy is going to do anything he can to distract them and cause them to forget about this moment. But, Father, that you would show up in a tangible way for them to help them follow through. And, Father, for all of us, most of us have had to have the painful experience before we finally realized we needed to walk away. But, God, for us today and as we look to the future, please, by your spirit, by the people you surround us with. Please help us less and less experience making decisions that harm us or harm others. And more and more, Father, that we would reflect your son and the beauty of his love and his generous spirit towards people who were nothing like him. And that, Father, that through us, people would experience you. That, Father, even through the lightness, the freedom that we have, that we don't live under this burden of guilt or shame, 
from the things that we've done or not done that we shouldn't do or should have done that Father that you would release us from that and that we would find the freedom that your son brings because we have been forgiven once and for all and Father may that hope that we carry just bleed out into the lives of the people around us at school, at work, in our neighborhoods every other day of the week Father I pray all this in the name of Jesus Amen